Okay, let's open in a word of prayer, then we will go through Lesson 13, the rare jewel of Christian contentment, the excuses of a discontented heart. This is the one that was meant to be one lesson. I broke it into two. There was just too much here. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful morning. Uh, We thank you for the Lord's Day and for the rest that it brings to us, body and soul. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity to fix our minds upon the truth of Holy Scripture uh, and to fix our minds and hearts upon you, O God. Uh, Do help us as we continue through this study on contentment. Help us to understand what it is. Help us to understand um, how it is that we lack it. And give us grace, O God, to lay a hold of it. Uh, We, I think, all agree that this is indeed a very precious uh, gift, a precious thing. So we ask that you would give it to us, O Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. In the introduction, I wanted to say that as I was reading through this chapter, it really occurred to me uh, that um, I should make this observation. Jeremiah Burroughs was not only a a skilled interpreter of Holy Scripture, um, it really struck me that he was also an experienced minister, a skilled physician of the soul. Uh, Does that become clear when we read this book? It becomes... It became really clear to me in this chapter in particular. I guess it's evident throughout. But um, you, you can tell that this man not only knew, knew Holy Scripture, but at this point in his life he had been in ministry long enough to understand how the soul works. Um, he's speaking to some very pointed issues that people struggle with, you know, as he goes through the excuses that are um, commonly made uh, for discontentment. You know, yes, I'm discontent, but it's justified because of this and because of that. So we will go through 13 excuses of a discontented heart, but we'll do it in two parts. We'll only cover points one through six uh, this morning. Number one, one that is discontented says, It is not discontent, it is a sense of my condition. And then he goes on to say, Perhaps when God takes away a friend or some other comfort, they are inordinately sorrowful and wringing their hands as if they were undone. But let anyone speak to them, and they say, Would you not have me sensible of my affliction? Thus many would hide their sinful murmuring under God's hand with this pretense that it is but sensibleness of their affliction. Uh, Are you following along with what Burroughs is saying here? Uh, So here he is as as a minister uh, perhaps ministering to a member of the congregation who is, um, who is very discontent, who is uh, sorrowful, but in a sinful way, perhaps, in an extreme way, to where they're debilitated by the sorrow. And so you can imagine Burroughs going to that one and, and, and seeking to minister to them. You seem so discontent, but we're to pursue contentment, brother. And the brother says in return, no, I'm not discontent, I'm just... I'm just aware of the severity of of the affliction, so leave me alone in it. You see, leave me alone in it. Uh, So he refers to inordinate sorrow here. Um, He speaks of the person who wrings their hands. They're they're consumed by the sorrow. Uh, This person speaks of being undone. And then if anyone would say to them... uh, Pursue contentment, uh, be at peace, even in the midst of the affliction, etc. Uh, they say, 
Would you not have me be sensible of my affliction? Are you telling me that I cannot um, simply acknowledge the severity of the situation that I'm in? Uh, and then Burroughs gives three answers to this. One, there is no sense of any affliction that will hinder the sense of God's mercies. Nay, the more, sensi- the more we are sensible of our afflictions, providing it is in a gracious manner, the more sensible we will be of God's mercy. But you are so sensible of your affliction that it takes away the sense of all your mercies. Oh, this is sinful discontent. This is not to be sensible as God would have you, but is to be sensible in a wicked way. You go beyond your bounds. So, no matter how severe our affliction is, it will not take away also our sense of God's mercies. So the Christian who is severely afflicted, if they are within proper bounds, will also be aware of God's mercies to them. Yes, I'm severely afflicted, but I could see that God is caring for me in the midst of the affliction. I could see that God is preserving me. I can see that God is doing something in me through the affliction. I hope in Him. I trust in Him. I'm not undone because God is my rock. God is my salvation. I'm deeply afflicted. I'm wounded. I'm sorrowful, but I'm not ruined. I'm not undone because God is merciful to me. You see, uh, you'll notice here that Burroughs talks about going beyond your bounds. Uh, Concerning grief, uh, the Scriptures say that we are to grieve, but not as those who have no what? So there's a boundary to our grief in Christ. Yes? Uh, grief is permitted. Jesus himself wept over the loss of his friend. But there is to be a boundary to our grief. Um, there are to be banks to it so that we do not, our grief does not overflow its banks to the ruin of the soul. That's what Burroughs is addressing here. And this is one of the reasons why I have said that he was an experienced Minister and a physician of the soul, he had noticed this that men and women are prone to this to be given over to inordinate sorrow, inordinate grief to the point of being undone. And the excuse they make is, Well, I'm afflicted, and this is nothing more than a sense of my affliction. No, uh, you, you have allowed your, your grief, your sorrow, your sense of affliction to overflow bounds. You have forgotten the mercies of God to you in the midst of your afflictions. Two, If it were but a bare sense of affliction, it would not hinder you in the duties of your condition. So, if it were simply a sense of your affliction, a proper sense of your affliction, the kind of sense of affliction that is permitted uh, by God and in the Scriptures, then you would not be so hindered in, in the duties of your condition. In other words, we always have duties before God, responsibilities for Him. Uh, before Him, to live in obedience to Him, uh, to think and say and do that which is pleasing to Him, to be active in corporate worship on the Lord's Day. I mean, these are the kinds of things that Burroughs is referring to here. Uh, if it were merely a sense of a proper sense of the affliction, then we would not be hindered in this. But when a person is undone inwardly and they begin to be hindered in terms of their responsibility, responsibilities in life uh, to, to God and to others... Uh, then this is more than just a normal sense of affliction. Uh, This is is sorrow and grief overflowing its boundaries in an all-consuming way. Three, if it were but a mere sense of your affliction, then you could in this, then you could in this your condition bless God for the mercies that others have, but your discontentedness usually breeds envy at others. Uh, 
So those with a proper sense of affliction are able uh, to still give glory to God and to to bless His name. Uh, Those who allow their afflictions to overrun them find themselves grumbling and complaining against God, perhaps even cursing or denying God, and envying what others have. Uh, This is timely. We're going to talk about the Tenth Commandment today, which is you shall not covet. Uh, We will also be talking about discontentment because covetousness and discontentment are related things. When we are discontent, we're discontent towards God, aren't we? We're dissatisfied with our lot in life and we're dissatisfied before God. And that oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes produces covetousness as it pertains to the way we look at other people. The discontentment before God in the heart oftentimes causes us to look around at what others have and say, I envy them. If only I would have what they have, then I would be satisfied. And um, this is what uh, this is what discontentment does. It causes us to complain against God and to be envious of others. Uh, so those are three answers to the first excuse. Well, it is only a, uh, a sense of my affliction. Burrow says, no, this is something more than that. This is sinful. In fact, this is an evil thing that you are giving yourself over to. Number two the second excuse of a discontented heart. But a discontented heart will say, I am not so much troubled with my afflictions, but it is for my sin rather than my affliction. And I hope you would give leave that we should be troubled and discontented with our sin. This made me smile. I, I don't know that I've encountered this excuse, but you can imagine someone making this excuse. Yes, I'm miserable, Yes, I am undone in the midst of the affliction, but it's not discontentment. I am just so bothered by my sin. You know, that sounds pious, right? That sounds very pious to be so bothered by your sin. Burroughs goes on, though, to say, Do not deceive your own heart. There is a very great deceit in this. There are many people who, when God's hand is out against them, will say that they are troubled for their sin. But the truth is, it is the affliction that troubles them rather than their sin. This is the reality of it. They're not so much bothered by their sin. They're bothered by the affliction that they're experiencing. Maybe it's the consequence of their sin. Yes? Maybe I have encountered this one. Um, Sin brings consequences. Maybe the judgment of the Lord um, upon the non-believer or the discipline of the Lord upon the believer. Sometimes there are what we would call natural consequences that come our way because of... um, because of our our sinful decisions. Um, So yes, I suppose some might say, I'm not discontent because of the affliction, but because of the sin. Burroughs says, come on, who are you fooling? Uh, Really, it is not your sin that you're bothered by. It is the affliction that has come upon you. He goes on again to say, um, or to note that these people that he has in mind were never troubled for their sin before the affliction came. You know, you weren't bothered by your sin until the consequences of it uh, came upon you. So an interesting observation there. Secondly, if the affliction were taken away and the sin remains, the discontent would remain too. (laughs) So what if the Lord were to remove the affliction, but still there's the sin? Um, You know, would would the discontent remain? Uh, Would it remain? 
But we see usually that if God removes their afflictions, they have no more trouble for their sin. And then he issues this warning, we must take heed of dallying with God, who is the seer and searcher of the secrets of all hearts. Many of you go sullen and dumpish up and down in your homes, and then you say, it is your sin that lies upon you, when God knows it is otherwise. It is because you cannot have your desires and you, that you would have. C, number three, an answer to this excuse. If you are troubled for your sin, then it will be your great care not to sin in your trouble, so as not by your trouble to increase your sin. The point here is this. If you are really troubled for your sin, good. But do not add sin to sin. Do not add the sin of discontentment and murmuring and grumbling against God to the sin that you have committed. But rather humble yourself before the Lord. Uh, Run to Him for mercy. Turn from your sin and find grace in Christ Jesus and be satisfied in the Lord, you see. So it's no excuse. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm undone, I'm murmuring, I'm complaining, I'm, uh, I'm a discontent person because of my sin. Okay, let's, let's assume that's true. Let's assume it is your sin that is making you so, so miserable. But don't add sin to sin by adding the sin of discontentment and murmuring against God to the sin that you have committed, whatever it may be. Four, if it's your sin that troubles you, then you have the more need to submit to God's hand and to take away the punishment of your iniquity, as in Leviticus 26.41. There is no consideration to take away murmuring and so much as to look upon my sin as the cause of my affliction. So a very good point here. If it is your sin that troubles you, then run to God all the more and find your satisfaction in Him, in His mercy and in His grace. The third excuse Oh, says another, I find that my affliction is such that God withdraws Himself from me in my affliction. This also um, sounds pious. And maybe this is truly the thought that the person is having. I'm afflicted, let's say, physically. And here is the thing that I'm really upset about and discontent about. It seems as if God has not only afflicted me, but God Himself has has removed himself from me. He's withdrawn himself from me. And that is the thing that has caused me to be undone. Again, I say it, it sounds pious. You know, I want the Lord and He has withdrawn Himself from me. That is the thing that is bringing such inordinate sorrow to my soul. Burroughs answers this excuse very strongly. He says, It is a very evil thing for men and women over every affliction to conclude that God is departed from them. Maybe you've thought this way before. Maybe you've experienced others who encountered others who, who, um, who, who think this way. Every time trouble comes, some affliction, um, some bad thing happens to them, some suffering comes upon them, they conclude that God has departed from them, that God has withdrawn His love, that God has withdrawn His favor. In fact, I think many people think this way. Uh, When good times come, that means God loves me. God is near to me. God is, is pouring out His favor upon me. And then, when bad times come, God must be angry with me. 
God must be severely displeased with me. He has departed from me. Um, you can see in this way of thinking the principle of works. You know, we, we must earn God's favor. Uh, and when His blessings come, He's pleased. When His blessings depart, He's displeased. What's wrong with that way of thinking? Uh, you know, well, of course, it's just thoroughly unbiblical. Um, but we can even look upon the life of Christ and His disciples. We could look upon the life of the great heroes of the faith and see that even when faithful, um, they would endure sufferings. It does not mean that God has departed them. Christ Himself suffered. Uh, did God depart from Christ in His earthly ministry? Um, was God displeased with Christ? No. He suffered for us and in our place. He suffered by taking on human flesh and living in this world that is marked by trials and tribulations. Uh, so he says it's a very evil thing for men and women to conclude this, that with every affliction God has departed from them. It may be, when it comes to be examined, I continue to quote now, there is no other reason why you think that God has withdrawn and departed but because He afflicts you. Now for you to make such a conclusion that every time God lays an affliction upon you He has departed is a sinful disorder of your heart. It is very dishonorable to God and grievous to His Spirit. So he says this is a disorder of your heart. Um, there's something in your soul that's out of sorts. Uh, the way you're thinking about God is, is out of sorts. The, the emotions that you are feeling uh, within you are out of sorts. You see the, the, the conclusions that you are coming to and then acting upon are out of sorts. There's something wrong with the soul. There's something wrong with the heart. Uh, this is maybe the part where I said, you know, Burroughs is a skilled physician of the soul. Um, it's a good observation. Two, the second answer he gives to this objection. If God is departed, the greatest sign of God's departing is because you are so disturbed. You make your disquiet the fruit of God's departing from you. If you could only cure your disquiet, if you could but quiet your own hearts and get them into a better frame of contentedness under God's hand in affliction, then you would find God's presence with you. He does not mean that God departs from the believer so as to abandon them thoroughly. Uh, that is not what Burroughs is saying here. Um, instead, I think he is acknowledging that in the Christian life, uh, sometimes we sense God's presence very strongly, as if He is near to us, as if His blessings are upon us. Sometimes God seems to be far away from us. There are times when God draws near to bless us. There are times when God pulls back to give us over to some affliction for a time. Our confession speaks to this. This is one of those truths that many Christians in the world today refuse to talk about, that God does permit His people to suffer afflictions, uh, to, to walk in these dark times. Does He do it because He hates His children? Does He do it because He's a cruel father? <laughs> Does He do it because He's unfaithful? No, he, He's a loving father who permits His children to experience difficulties from time to time in order to sanctify them, in order to refine them. And yes, sin does grieve God. The Holy Spirit is grieved by the sin of God's children. 
What does that mean, that the Holy Spirit is grieved? Does it mean that we lose the Holy Spirit every time we sin? Does it mean that we lose our salvation? Does it mean that we're unadopted every time that we sin and then adopted again when we repent? No. Um, all of that is, is, is terribly false. But when the Scriptures say that the Spirit of God is grieved by our sin, it means something. It, it means that there, there is a sense in which the relationship and the intimacy that we have with God is strained. That's a good word, yes. Strained. You know, this relationship that we have with God in Christ Jesus is a real one. And, and the, the Spirit is grieved by our sin and there is a strain that comes upon the relationships to where, to where there's, there's not an abandonment. God is faithful to His covenant and it is a covenant of grace. Uh, but you've experienced this. I don't need to be too precise with my words because I think in Christ you've experienced what it is to grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, but here Burroughs is saying, listen, if it is true that God is departed, that there is this strain in the relationship, that the Spirit has been grieved and, and, and the Lord has given you over to a, a, a time of difficulty and even a time of darkness. The greatest sign of God's departing is because you are so disturbed. L look at you, you are so disturbed because of this affliction. And is that not the greatest sign that your relationship with God is not what it should be? If you were content in the midst of the affliction, then God would not seem far from you. He would seem very near to you. You would sense His presence. There would be great intimacy with God. You would have sweet communion with Him in the midst of the affliction, whatever it is, if you would only be content, you see. Uh, so He is, again, confronting the believer here. Uh, with the sin of discontentment. The, the problem is not God. The problem is you. And in your heart and in your perception of the affliction that you are now experiencing. Thirdly, the third answer to um, this excuse. Do you find God departing from you in your affliction? Will you therefore depart from God too? Is this your help? Is this your answer? You know? You feel as if God is far from you, so you're going to go far from God. Is this your solution? Can you help yourself that way? But God is gone, will you go too? Burroughs asks. And then he gives a very beautiful illustration here, a very simple one, concerning a mother and a child. If the child sees the mother going from it, it is not for the child to say, My mother is gone yonder and I will go the other way. No, but the child goes crying after the mother. So should the soul say, I see the Lord is withdrawing His presence from me, and now it is best for me to make after the Lord with all my might. It's a very helpful illustration. You've seen this before. A little child, uh, when the mother uh, goes a distance away, and the child, you know, for a moment kind of panics. Where has my mother gone? You know, the child goes, I I'm lost, looks around, and then the child fixes her eyes upon the mother. And what does the child do? Sprints to the mother. You know, crying probably because of the fear that overcame the child. You say it's got, it has to be the same way with the soul. If it is true that you sense God is distant from you, He is not distant from you ultimately in the covenant of grace. He is ever faithful. But if that is your perception, if that is your, your sense, then do not turn your back on God and deny Him. Rather, run to Him. That should be the thing you do. Run to Him. Run to Him in Christ. Run to Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Run to Him in the covenant of grace. Claim the precious and very great promises of His Word. Know that He is ever faithful. He will never forsake 
those who are His. He will finish the work that He began in you, etc. Remember all of those things, and though you have this spiritual sense that God is distant, fine, you have that sense as if God has withdrawn Himself, but run to God. That should be your impulse, not to run away from Him. Fourthly, the fourth excuse. I think I could be content with God's hand, but when men, when men deal so unreasonably and unjustly with me, I do not know how to bear it. I could bear that I should be in God's hands, but not in the hands of men. Uh, this is a good observation. And I can see how men would reason this way. You know, <laughs> If the affliction were directly from God, if He were to touch me in some way, and if it was His will that I be afflicted and His direct action upon me that I be afflicted. I could bear with that. But I am afflicted because of the sin of other people and that just irks me to the core. Can't handle it, you know. I'm consumed with anger and I'm consumed with bitterness and I grumble and I complain against God now, in fact, and against man because of the affliction that has come upon me because it's their fault. It's their fault. Um, You've probably been tempted to do this. I know that I have. Uh, sometimes we justify our murmuring, our grumbling, our discontent by saying, well, I'm not complaining against God. I'm complaining against these people all around me. Right? You guys are all thinking of the same thing right now. I can tell. You know, I would be happy if it weren't for these politicians. Um, that's what you're all thinking. I know it. Um, or this, whatever it is, this family around me, these co-workers of mine. Um, and so we live a life of murmuring and grumbling and complaining because of other people. And, and we think, strangely we think, well, I'm, I, I'm not complaining against God. I'm complaining about them. If it were God that afflicted me, I would be content. But it's, these afflictions have come upon me because of other people. And you could, when you're, when you're in your right mind and you're thinking rationally about this, you realize the absurdity of this excuse, and Burroughs brings it out nicely. Though they are men who bring this cross on you, yet they are God's instruments. They are God's instruments. God has a hand in it, and they can go no further than God would have them go. God is sovereign. Uh, he works through people. He even works through sinful people, evil people. To bring about His purposes. He does not tempt them to sin. He does not cause them to sin. But He even uses uh, wicked instruments to bring about His purposes. This is so clearly uh, taught in the pages of Holy Scripture. Um, Again, we may go to Christ and the cross to see this most powerfully displayed. That God works through wicked men using evil for good. And He does this always. So they are God's instruments. We cannot forget it. B, if this is your trouble that men do so wrong, you ought rather to turn your hearts to pity them than to murmur or be discontented. So when someone does evil to you, when they speak evil of you perhaps, what should your view of them be? Should you be so discouraged to grumble and complain against God should you be bitter towards them and angry in an ungodly way? Uh, Burroughs says you should pity them. You should pity them um, because of uh, how s- really sad their condition is. 
that they would gossip and slander your name. Yes, that hurts. But think of how pitiful their condition is, that they would live in this way, or that they have stolen from you, or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, we should, in fact, pity uh, those who, who wrong us. I think it's in this section that he again quotes Socrates, you know, the, the non-believer, and, and says that even Socrates understood this. Uh, and I think whenever Burroughs is quoting these, what he will call heathen philosophers, he's doing so to make this point, hey, even they got it. <laughs> so Christian, certainly you should get it. Because we see this in the scriptures and you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You should understand this, that we are not to be given over to bitterness and to murmuring when others wrong us. Rather, we should pity those who wrong us. Thirdly, though you meet with hard dealings from men, yet you meet with nothing but kind, good, and righteous dealings from God. And and when you meet with unrighteous dealings from them, set one against the other, and that is an answer to the fourth plea or the fourth excuse uh, which we are here considering. Uh, What he is saying here is that when you look at the wrongs that others have done to you, pity them as you look at them, but also don't forget to look to God and to consider His great kindness to you, His goodness to you, His righteousness towards you, His mercy towards you, and compare and contrast the two. Uh, and see just how good God is to you. So when you are wronged by others, fix your eyes upon the Lord and be reminded of His kindness to you and savor that all the more. Don't fixate upon the wrong done to you. Fixate instead upon the mercy that God has shown to you in Christ Jesus. The fifth excuse, Oh, but the affliction that comes upon me is an affliction which I never looked for. I never thought I would meet with such an affliction, and that is what I cannot bear. That is what makes my heart so disturbed, because it was altogether unlooked for and unexpected. You know, I, I, I thought that maybe other things would happen to me, and if it were one of those things that I anticipated, I could bear it. But this thing has come out of left field. It blindsided me, and that's the thing that I cannot bear. Burroughs has three remarks to this. It is your weakness and folly that you did not look for it and expect it. You you were foolish to not expect this affliction, whatever it may be. It is true. I do not know the particular affliction that may befall me, but but this I know, that the Spirit of God witnesses that bonds and affliction shall abide me everywhere. I look for nothing else but bonds and afflictions wherever I go. Therefore, no affliction should come unexpectedly to, the, to a Christian. So you are living foolishly. You missed the fact that in the scriptures we are told this life will be marked by trials and tribulations of various kinds. Of all kinds. You can look to the scriptures and see this. You can consider the lives of God's people who have gone before you to see this. You could look upon the lives of God's people now in the world today to see this that God's people experience trials and tribulations of various kinds. So it is foolish to think that there are only certain possibilities for you, but not others in the future as it pertains to the trials and tribulations of life. That is his first answer. Is it unexpected, he says, secondly, 
then the less provision you made for it before it came, the more careful you should be to sanctify God's name in it. Now it is come. Okay, so you didn't expect it. You were unprepared. So do not be discontent and grumble and complain against God and withdraw from Him. From him. It's all the more reason to run to God and to find help in God and in the things of God in the midst of this affliction which you did not prepare for. I think that's a good answer. Thirdly, it is in this case of afflictions as in mercies. Many times mercy comes unexpected. And that might be a third answer to you. Set one against the other. I have many mercies that I never looked for, as well as afflictions that I never looked for, as well as... Aff- That's a repeat somehow. How did that happen? Uh, As well as afflictions that I never looked for. Why should not the one rejoice me as much as the other disturbs me? A a wonderful point too. You know, um, the scriptures talk about being anxious for tomorrow. And they warn against this. Um, And one of the warnings that we have is, I mean, it accomplishes nothing. It only robs you in the present to be anxious about tomorrow. It's foolish also because you you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow at all. It just, you you might plan for tomorrow, and indeed there is wisdom in planning. We're not to not plan. The Proverbs talk about preparing for the future financially and etc. I'm not saying don't plan for tomorrow, but, but you have to plan for tomorrow with great humility, knowing that things do not always go as we plan. In fact, they rarely do. They rarely do. So we plan for the future. We might have goals. We might have aspirations. We plan for the future in the sense of we prepare financially so that we, are, we have provisions. All of that is good. But, but we say, if the Lord wills. I will do this or that tomorrow. If the Lord wills, Lord willing, I will do this thing or that thing tomorrow. And in that little phrase, Lord willing, or if the Lord wills, we are acknowledging that we make plans, fine. It is good that we do so. But ultimately it will be the Lord's will that happens. Uh, And so we know that life will sometimes bring unexpected blessings upon us. And are you happy to receive those unexpected blessings, brothers and sisters? Or do you complain against God against, about those? I did not plan for this. <laughs> you know, How dare you, God, thrust this upon me? No, we never do that. We just rejoice in the unexpected, unexpected blessings. And Burroughs is saying, well, listen, we, we need to submit ourselves to God humbly as it pertains to the unexpected uh, troubles that come upon us. Sixthly and lastly, the, the sixth excuse. Oh, but my affliction is exceedingly great, says someone. And however you say we must be contented, you may say so who do not feel such great afflictions. But if you felt my affliction, which I feel, you would think it hard to bear and be content. I feel like I addressed this last week a bit somehow. I can't remember under which point. But as a, as a pastor... Um, I've certainly been pressed with this objection before when trying to minister to someone going through a particular thing, a particularly hard thing. Um, the attitude is this, you really can't speak to me, you're not allowed to speak to me in the midst of this affliction because you have not been through this thing in particular, so you don't know. 
And perhaps you've experienced this with brothers and sisters in Christ or with friends, with loved ones. Yes, this, this affliction is so severe and you haven't been through it, therefore you have nothing to say. You cannot say to me, pursue contentment. Well, we say pursue contentment. We exhort one another in this way. Not because it is our exhortation, but because it is the exhortation of the Lord. And we do so on the authority of Holy Scripture, not on the authority of our human experience. Amen? And so we can exhort one another in many ways, even if we have not been in the exact circumstances that our brothers and sisters in Christ are in. Maybe we haven't had the same life experiences, the same upbringing, you know. And so people will make all kinds of excuses for their behavior, for their sinful behavior. Well, listen, it's easy for you to say, you weren't raised like I was raised. Well, I don't need to have been raised as you were raised in order to bring the truth of God's Word to you. I was raised as I was raised, and you were raised as you were raised, and we are both responsible for God to live in a way that honors Him. And that includes pursuing this precious gift of contentment. Let it be as great an affliction as it will. It is not as great as your sin, Burrow says. He has punished you less than your sins. So, there is a very pointed remark. You say your affliction is very great. Well, why don't you compare your affliction to your sin? What does your sin actually deserve? Your sin actually deserves much more than what you are currently afflicted with. So your affliction, compared to what your sin deserves, will all of a sudden seem very small. will seem very small. It might have been a great deal more. You might have been in hell, Burroughs says. And it is, if I remember Bernard saying, he said, it is an easier matter to be oppressed than to perish. You might have been in hell, and therefore the greatest of the things should not make you murmur, even grant it to be very great. Um, So, yes, consider this affliction that you are now experiencing, even if it is truly very, very great. People do suffer great afflictions in this life, no doubt. But compare that affliction to the affliction of eternal damnation, and see that God has been merciful to you, even in the midst of great afflictions in this life. Thirdly, it may be, it is the greater because your heart murmurs so. Shackles upon a man's legs, if his legs are sore, will pain him more. If the shoulder is sore, the burden is greater. It is because your heart is so unsound that your affliction is great to you. Now, that is a very wonderful remark, a wonderful observation Uh, Yes, uh, people are undone by the afflictions they experience, not because the affliction itself is the thing that causes them to be ruined and undone, but because their heart is wicked, uh, because their heart is unsound, it's unhealthy. Uh, The heart grumbles and complains against God in the midst of affliction, and that is the real problem. Indeed, in Christ Jesus, we know that we have all that we need uh, to flourish in this life. To flourish in this life even in the midst of great afflictions. I have this down to a science, don't I? Uh, 45 minutes. Um, We're out of time. But are there any questions or remarks with just really the few minutes that we have left? Tom. If God seems far away, guess who moved? Uh, Yeah, that is a good quote. That is a very good quote. 
God is unchanging. He's faithful in the covenant of grace. I think that's a very good perspective. Yes. Thank you. Dina. If we are afflicted by, let's say, a political system or our work environment or we see injustices, is it... I mean, I, I, I think I've been guilty of murmuring about those things, but what, what is the proper response? Is it is it right and just for us to maybe take action against those things or to bring it to it? Like, what's the proper role without just being a grumbler and a complainer? So the question was, I'm repeating it for the recording, um, if, we are dis- if we are disturbed by a political situation, work environment, is it ever right for us to murmur um, or what is the proper thing to do? Should we just not do anything or should we take action? And yes, the answer is if we have opportunity if, to, to take action, uh, we should take action. We should go to God with um, our, our legitimate concerns, our, our legitimate sorrows, our grief, our frustrations, take them to the Lord and speak to Him about them to ask Him to change those situations and to use you to change those situations if possible. I think we can go and speak to those who have the ability to change the situation in a, in a godly way, where we speak directly to the person who has the ability to change the situation. Uh, yes, uh, there, there, is, there is nothing sinful about looking upon a situation that is evil or dysfunctional or unhealthy and calling it that. This is evil, this is dysfunctional, this is unhealthy. The question is, what do we do with it? Uh, and yes, I think it is the right it, oftentimes we, we can take action. Certainly we could always pray uh, about those things. Um, I think we said something in a study about anger that maybe the men went through some time ago in that book, Good and Angry. Uh, one thing I loved about that book that we went through is that it acknowledged there is such thing as righteous anger. And in fact, we have an anger problem when we are not angry about things we should be angry about. That is also an anger problem. Isn't that an interesting observation? I agree with that. Um, when we think of anger problems, we think, usually think of people who are explosive with anger or filled with bitterness, and those are anger problems too. But when we see injustice in the world, we, that should bother us. That should anger us. Um, if, we, if we are apathetic, that's not good. God is not apathetic and indifferent towards sin. Neither should we be apathetic or indifferent towards sin. But anger becomes a problem when we respond to the injustice that we see in an ungodly way, where we explode or we grow bitter. And it's the same thing with um, murmuring and discontent. Uh, It may be that the affliction is real. Call it an affliction. Pray to God about the affliction. Do what you can to have the affliction removed, but do it in a godly way without murmuring and complaining. Yeah, Scott. Um, So getting back to Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I mean, his words are no affliction should come unexpectedly. So that does that mean we do expect everything to happen? Or do we have? Or how do you how do you differentiate between that? 
So we're to know that life is marked by trials and tribulations. No trial and tribulation that befalls man should ever surprise us if it comes upon us, because who is to? It's God's will that will be accomplished, not ours. And right, so we, we're to live with that. But I don't think we're to live with a very. I don't think we're to live with a pessimistic outlook. You know, as if certainly everything is going to fall apart. You know what I'm saying? Uh, certainly all of these afflictions are going to befall me, or the worst of them will. You know, I think we should. Um, um, Hope for the best, but prepare for the worst or not be surprised by the worst. You know, um, think what is best of, of life and of people around us and of the future in, in Christ. I think we could at the same time live with a very optimistic outlook um, while being still realistic. I, I don't think the two things are opposed. And and I think we can be joyous as we think about the future and, and at peace and happy because we know that God has us. That's the point. No matter what befalls us, God will keep us and God will satisfy us. Uh, so I think we should be very optimistic, very joyous, very positive about the future. Not because we think the future is going to go really, really well, um, Neither should we be pessimistic about the future because we think the future is going to be very, very bad. We, we should be optimistic, positive, hopeful, joyous about the future because we know no matter what comes our way, God will keep us. He will sustain us and He will be our satisfaction. Yeah, That's a good question. One more. <laughs> Jody, yes. Oh yeah. Yes. Yes. That's a very good observation too. This book constantly has drawn us back to that principle that our hope, our confidence, our contentment, our joy, our peace must be rooted in God and in Christ. Other things might bring us joy and we must see them as tokens of God's love to us. We must enjoy them to the glory of His name, but our roots have to be set down deep in God, who is unchanging and ever faithful. I, I think many Christians do err in this way. They don't even know it. Uh, they enjoy God's blessings, and that's proper, but they enjoy them in an idolatrous way, and their roots are in fact sunk down deep into those worldly, creaturely things. Too much. So that if they were ripped away from them, they would be near to undone. You know. Uh, so yeah, it's a very good reminder. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this study. Do help us to lay a hold of contentment. I pray for those who are in difficult times right now, who are experiencing some affliction, perhaps even very severe affliction, that you would give them this gift of contentment even now. I pray for those who are experiencing good times uh, who are not walking in the valley of the shadow of death, but have the sun shining down upon them in this moment. Give them the gift of contentment too. May it be authentic and sincere, so that whatever the future brings, that they would remain content in you and in the things of you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.